Hi, everybody. I'm Sterling. I'm an alcoholic. Hey, Ooh, boy. Y'all look pretty good for a bunch of drunks and friends of drunks. <laughs> I'm truly grateful to be here. Uh, through God's grace, both sides of sponsorship, and your fellowship, I haven't found it necessary to take a drink since 2nd of June, 1981, and for that, I'm truly, truly grateful. I want to thank Danny, Liz, Pete, Oh, gosh, everybody that asked to have me come back out. You know, that doesn't happen often that people ask for me to come back, you know? <laughs> I was at the service, and I moved 12 times in 20 years, and no one ever asked for me back, you know? <laughs> gosh, well, I really appreciate it. I think it's an honor to do anything like this, um, to stand up here before you all, especially on this weekend. I, up until now, it has been phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal. Um, I, I, it's just been a, a great, great, great roundup. You've had some outstanding speakers. I've been, I've been fed. I really have been. Um, and it, it's been wonderful. And I kind of like the fact that you sandwiched me between a couple of Al-Anons, which I think is appropriate, you know? <laughs> I always need twice the heft than everybody else. <laughs> so, I'm a real sicko. Uh, I'm a real sicko. But I'm grateful to be here. I'm glad to be here in, in Ohio, Cincinnati, back in Cincinnati. I come from, I give you greetings from the, the Foxhall Group in Omaha, Nebraska. Omaha is about 375,000 folks, and uh, not all of them are at my meeting, but <laughs> we're working on it, you know. <laughs> you know? <laughs> but I give you greetings. Well, we meet on 36th and U Street uh, on Tuesday nights, and we have a speaker's meeting at 8 o'clock, and we have a beginner's meeting at 6 o'clock, and you're welcome to come, and I'm in the book, so give me a call, and we go down there and have a good time. You know, um, I, like I tell you, this weekend has been so great. I mean, all I got to do is just say, you know, I drank. It really, it, it wasn't really a whole lot of fun, and then I came here, and I've been having a lot of fun, and life has changed, and all right, I'm done. <laughs> you know that? Because you heard, if you get to hit that, though, wait a minute, 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 wait a minute. See, see what happens? See what happens? Make a statement, you know, keep coming back. <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. But you know, that's the thing, though. It's been a great weekend. I have, I'm amazed. Uh, if you're brand new in Alcoholics Anonymous or you're brand new this week, you haven't gotten, you, you haven't been to a meeting before now, you've missed it but you still got a chance, see? Because there's a room full of folks in here, and all of them ain't wrapped too tight. <laughs> so just spend the rest of the afternoon, evening, and maybe tomorrow just looking for the ones that ain't wrapped too tight. They're pretty pro not prominent in the area, so you can you see them and just watch them for a little while. If you're brand new to Alcoholics Anonymous, watch those that seem to have a glad heart, seem to have a whole lot of things going on. You know, they're just a little bit crazy. You know, just watch them and see, you know, how they got there. Because I don't know, if you drank like I drank, you know, I ended up in some bars where there was always a happy hour. You always know there's always a happy hour. How come ain't nobody ever happy at those damn happy hours? <laughs> there's people sitting around, got long faces on, drinks are half price, and they even giving us food. We should be thrilled to death, but, you know, it's just, they're just doing that maintenance. They're just maintaining. See, drinking to live is not a whole lot of fun. And that's how I got here. I got here all screwed up. You know, I grew up in, in the South Bronx in New York City, South Bronx in Harlem. You know, my, my full name is Sterling David Holmes III. Now, ain't that something? Now, when you got a name like that with Roman numeral on the end of your name, you're supposed to get a country to run. George V, Louis XIII, Sterling III. Where my country? I got a little sister at nine years old, moved into my room, pissed me off. 
See, so I grew, I grew up in an area, no, my, the first fellowship that I was a member of was my family. And my family is just fine. My family ain't dysfunctional at all. The only time my family becomes dysfunctional is when I get in it and start trying to manipulate the situation and get in my way. Then they become dysfunctional as hell. That was my first fellowship. And I felt apart from then. You know, I, I heard it here spoken at, from this podium this weekend. Different. I felt different. I felt different. I got on the planet with everything I needed to be to be happy. God gave me that, like he gives every one of his kids. But the problem is, I felt different. There were two groups, me and all y'all. And that was the way I saw it. The family that I grew up in, you know, they used to use the term, when I first came to A, they used to use the term uh, Catholic Irish alcoholic, CIA. Now, I got two of those knocked out. I'll, get you, I'll give you an idea on which two they are, you know. <laughs> you can figure it out. It ain't that hard. Um, and that was the deal for me. I came up in, you know, in a, in a New York neighborhood with parents that weren't Irish, <laughs> you know, and, and I watched a lot of television. And I saw on television, what I saw on television was those, that, that beautiful little home in the suburbs and the, the wife that always had the hair done and baked the cookies. And, you know, I saw dad always walked in the house at five o'clock, put his briefcase down, honey, I'm home, that kind of thing, you know. They solved their problems in a half an hour. They always had dinner at six. You know, everything was wonderful. That was the kind of family I thought I needed. Because needless to say, mom did not look like Donna Reed. <laughs> and, and we weren't solving problems in a half an hour, particularly when they were problems that I had created. We really didn't solve them in a half an hour. Yeah, I was a weird kid. And they didn't know what to do with this strange and talented little boy. The fact of the matter is, I thought that's what I needed. Now, I've been to hundreds, thousands of meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I've sat right next to people who have had Leave it to Beaver lifestyles just like they were on television, and they're just as screwed up as I am, so I don't think that would have fixed me. That would not have fixed me. The fact that I grew up in New York or here or anywhere else does not change the fact that when I got on the planet, I felt apart from you, and I had a certain amount of fear, and I kept that a secret from you. Because I knew if you found out how afraid I was or how, how weird I was on the inside, you wouldn't love me. And I desperately needed you to love me. I didn't much, much like you, but I desperately needed you to love me. And that was important. And I went to great pains to try to prove that. And sometimes, even today, I may get into that kind of mode of thinking that somehow or another, your approval of me is going to make me more than what I already am. Because I'm actually enough. With your help, I've, be I've been enough for a long time. I got on the planet enough. And the fact of the matter is, the principles of Alcoholics Anonymous make me enough in anything, absolutely anything I want to do on any given moment and any given day. And the only thing that screws that whole equation up is what you see <laughs> right between my ears. This is the enemy for me, the bad neighborhood that I don't need to, that I don't need to be in by myself. And I, I've had it with me. I, I've always, I don't know about y'all, but I know I'm one of those kind of people. I may not be much, but I'm all I think about. <laughs> Get up in the morning. What about me? What's going to happen to me? What's about me? What about me? Me, 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 me. I love that girl's name. You know, Sue was talking about a newcomer and a Mimi was her name. I love that. That's a great name, you know? That was the thing for me. I always thought about me, and I was always thinking about what I needed, what I should have gotten, and I was always afraid that you'd find out the secret, and I didn't know what the secret was. It's real confusing. I didn't even drink yet. I didn't start drinking until I was 13 years old, but I had a maelstrom going on between my ears. That's the deal. Alcohol quieted a storm inside me. I am grateful that I got the alcohol because I brought to alcohol everything that, you, that I have in, inside of me today. 
Alcohol did not make me the asshole that I am. I already, I came to alcohol with that. I have problems living life on life's terms. And that's the alcoholism that I suffer from today, and that's why drinking ain't the issue. But drinking did something to me, like I've heard discussed here this weekend. When I took that tall can of Colt 45 down at 13 years old, my perception changed. My feelings about you and about me went through a startling metamorphosis, and that metamorphosis was that if I figured when I, I knocked that thing back that I could be as cool, I could dance as well as Michael Jackson, speak as well as Jesse Jackson, play sports as well as Reggie Jackson. It changed the way I felt, and if it was working that way today, I would still be out today being one of the Jacksons, but it doesn't work. <laughs> it doesn't work that way for me anymore, and if you're new in Alcoholics Anonymous, when something doesn't work, most people would sense discard it. I couldn't let go of it because it had become my solution and it remained my solution until I encountered you all. And even today, even though it may have been top on the list when I got here, it's still in the top ten today. And it's been a long time since I've had a drink, but it's still in the top ten. But you put it real low. I got a lot of other things I got to do before I get down to that solution. And if I don't keep this, this maintenance going, it'll come to the top again. And it'll be the only solution that I think about. The insanity returns and I will drink. I know that. So if you're new in Alcoholics Anonymous, you don't think you're one of us, there's two ways you can figure this out. You can go back out there and try it some more, which has been recommended, even in our book. Or you can hang out with us and listen to our stories and maybe, just maybe, we'll raise your bottom for you. And you won't have to go back out there and die like so many of, so many of us have done. You know, what you're seeing are the survivors, <laughs> you know, the ones that have been up at this podium are the survivors. The ones that have been talking to you about their lives and their disease are the ones that surrendered something, gave up something, and then somehow or another the obsession left, and they're still here breathing, walking around, talking, and working with folks. But there are so many, and I think every one of them would attest to this, there's so many that aren't here. And there were some that walked right in shoulder to shoulder with these guys. And, you know, these, we're talking about some great speakers here this weekend. And they're not here anymore. And I know that there was a few that walked in with me, and they're not here anymore. So the fact of the matter is, you can stay here or you can leave. There's nobody that's going to chain you to that chair. But I would hope, I would hope with all this inside of me that you would stick around long enough to find some other nutcase to watch for about six months to a year. <laughs> because you're, you're going to see a show. You're going to see a hell of a show. Now, I grew up in New York City. I went to Catholic school. Now, I have no problems with the Catholic doctrine, none whatsoever. Some of the nuns that taught it to me weren't wrapped too tight, but other than that, you know, because I was a precocious kid. It says on the, in the 12 and 12, you know, we like to call ourselves precocious. Well, you know, that's another way of saying asshole. Um, I was precocious in the second grade. I raised my hand on summer's day and said, Sister, how can you have a virgin birth? And she wasn't prepared to discuss that profound theological concept with a seven-year-old, so she hit me and sent me to the principal. <laughs> and while I was sitting in that principal's office waiting for him to come down and hit me some more, I figured it out. You adults don't have all the answers. So now I'm, I'm into my own fear. I'm into my own insanity. I'm into my own, you know, I don't believe you have all the answers for me. You know at 13 years old, when I took that tall can of cold 45 back, I was well on my way to alcoholism because I had all the answers. I didn't trust you. I needed you, but I was afraid of you, and I had my solution. I had liquid courage going on. You know, some of my friends were into recreational chemicals. I really wasn't in that. Mom was a narcotics officer, okay? <laughs> Made me real popular in the neighborhood, let me tell you. <laughs> 
And mom came home with a lot of information about drugs because she cared about her son. And additionally, what mom said to me one time is that you can do, you can drink. If you have to drink, you can drink here at home. Now, there are people in treatment centers and psychological offices all over the country that would say that my mom was codependent or an enabler or anything like that. What I think my mom was was my mom was being a mom. See, because she cared about her son, and she knew that New York was a dangerous place, and she wanted me to do whatever I needed to do to explore whatever in the safety of our home because she didn't want anything bad to happen to her kid. And there was no enabling in that. See, nine times out of ten, the people that love us and care about us and try to help us do it because they love us and they care about us, not because they're suffering from any widespread psychological disorder. (laughs) The fact of the matter is they love and care about us, and alcoholics just love to suck people like that drop. (laughs) You know, every one of y'all that drank got a friend that will bail your butt out no matter what time you call, and you call often. (laughs) Because you know that's the one, and that's the deal. I was a user because I was so afraid to tell you the truth. And I used the the opportunities and and the love and the kindness that I got in my family, that very first fellowship that God put me in. I used those people. And in using people, it's real hard to get honest with people when you're using folks. So I kept them at a distance, and I kept them at arm's length, and I resented them, and I hated them, and I hated me for hating them, and all of that. And drinking changed it all. See, every once in a while, I'd come home on a Saturday afternoon, and mom, mom, every once in a while, I would drink. That was her thing, you know, on Saturday night. She'd play those old Marvin Gaye, Earth, Wind and Fire, Marvin Gaye, and Gladys Knight and the Pips, and Temptations. You know, old R&B, 45s. Oh, yeah, back in the old days, we used to have these records. You know? <laughs> they looked like CDs. They were just bigger and blacker. Um, that's for the newcomer. And we played it on this disc, and it made music. And, you know, and... <laughs> And she would play this thing, and, and she'd play this stuff over and over and over again, and sometimes she'd pass out on the floor, and I'd come home from hanging out, and, and I would see Mom on the floor, and I'd turn the stereo off, and I'd put her in bed, and I'd think to myself, that's disgusting, I'm never going to do that. And I never did. I never did. I, I passed out on the couch most times, and I played Earth, Wind, and Fire records, so it was completely different. You know, completely different. But, I, you know, by the time I got through high school, it was pretty apparent to, to, to everybody there was something wrong with me. But nobody knew I suffered from alcoholism because alcoholics in New York don't look like little Catholic black kids. <laughs> they look like people that lay on the side of buildings with a long overcoat in front of them and a brown paper bag. That's what an alcoholic was as far as we were all concerned. If somebody had mentioned that maybe I was an alcoholic, I know that my family would have mobilized and sent me to some place or put me in something or what, because they cared about me. But nobody thought that I was an alcoholic, least of all me. So they weren't treating me like I was dysfunctional or incapacitated or even sick. They were treating me like I was just screwed up. And they cared about me, and in the process, they helped me along. And they did a lot of things to help my disease, and they didn't even know about it. You know, and the fact of the matter is I bloomed and I progressed. By the time I got out of high school, I was most likely to be an alcoholic. I mean, 15 years old, I blacked out one time at a party trying to impress this girl that I had just started to go out with and drinking gin with her ex-boyfriend trying to show him what kind of man I am. And I, I won, but I passed out, you know, <laughs> and couldn't be revived. And, you know, we woke up the next day at this, this person's house. We all stayed the night, and I was really embarrassed about the whole deal, and you know how we are. We're quick to come up with a reason why we do some of the bizarre things that we do. And uh, they, I just blamed the whole terrible experience on bad onion dip, you know. <laughs> Obviously, it had to be the onion dip. 
Now, I know I'm in a room full of people that have probably never been pulled over by a sheriff for having one too many tacos. You know? <laughs> Allergic reactions to strawberries do not get you a, an audience with the judge, okay? That's the deal. It was ethyl alcohol, but I didn't know that, and I had all of my excuses set up, and I had all of the people enabled, that I, the people set up that I needed to have to help me do this thing that I was doing. And, you know, if you're going to do a lot of drinking when you're young and you drink blackout drinking like I was starting to do, you end up telling a lot of lies and you forget what you're told. And, and when you tell a lot of lies and you forget what you're told and you're talking to people that ain't drinking as much as you, they remember you don't, you get in trouble. And I don't know, you either got to start telling the truth, which for us <laughs> isn't going to happen, uh, or you got to move. Now, I'd always wanted to join a gang. And, but the guys in my neighborhood who were really into gangs wouldn't let me join gang because I was going to these good schools. So that, I decided to join a real gang, a serious gang. It's called the Department of Defense. I mean, you know, you're going to join a gang, join a gang has got nuclear weapons, you know? Because <laughs> when we go to a gang fight, we go to a gang fight, Jack, you know? So I, and they had colors, you know, so. So I joined the United States Air Force. And when, when I signed that contract, the Air Force thought they were getting a reasonably sane adult individual, somewhat 19, 20 years old. It was going to, they were going to train and send a couple places. And I, I thought that I was going to be able to get a paycheck and, and do some different things. We both went into that contract with our eyes wide open. Neither one of us knew that I suffered from alcoholism. But see, when you do that, when you suffer from alcoholism, you're not going to be a good employee. You're not going to be a good son. You're not going to be a good brother. You're not going to be a good uncle. You're not going to be an employer. You're not going to be any of those things because alcoholism is alcoholism sucks it all out. Everything was going to have to go. I didn't know that at the time. Neither did the Air Force. So they sent me on my way, and I bloomed because they gave me some things that I think are the Petri dish for the development of the disease. They provided me with an income. You need an income. doesn't necessarily have to be your income, but you need an income. <laughs> you need a place to crash. Again, doesn't necessarily have to be your place to crash, but, you know, got to have some place. And then you need meals in the beginning. Towards the end, the meals aren't that important. <laughs> but I got all of that from Mama Air Force, and I joined there, and we went gallivanting off across the Cal uh, to California, and I bloomed out there drinking illegally and all of that. And, you know, it was starting to get kind of tough. Doing that drinking every day and screwing around and being irresponsible and being a jerk and all of that. I knew that things, you know, people were reacting to me. How they usually react to alcoholics when we're doing our deal. You know, they look at, look at you funny and, you know, so I knew I needed some solutions. And that's what I love about alcoholics. We always look for an outside thing to solve an inside problem. And you know what I wanted. You know, I wanted something to, be, to validate me as a person, you know, something to make me to feel good on the inside. So I just had to bring somebody else in this dance of death, and that was a relationship. Of course, that'll solve the problem. Now, alcoholics and my don't date. We don't date. We hunt down and capture. You know, just, so I, I spanned my little area of, you know, my environment, and I locked on, targeted, acquired, and just, you know, dealt with it. And just relentless, you know, and that's the deal. Most people that, that deal with alcoholics, they know. They sense that danger, they sense something is wrong, and they run away. Alanons don't run all that fast. That's, <laughs> they just kind of slowly trot, you know, and occasionally look back to see if we're in eyesight, you know, and that's, that's, so I found one that was buying what I was selling. And I told her that I wanted to be a good husband, and I told her I wanted to be a good dad and all, and I really did want to be that. I, want, I meant what I said. I just suffer from alcoholism. It's not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. And we got married, and we had a little girl, and we were in Japan, and, and now all of a sudden I'm, a, I'm supposed to be a grown-up, and I'm acting like a kid because I feel like a kid. 
But now I got a kid. And his responsibilities are coming to a head, you know, and I'm, I'm feeling guilt. I lost my mom just before I went overseas. And all of the guilt that I had about my association and how I had treated her as a kid and how I had treated her as an adult started to come to a full head right here. And you know, when you got guilt and when you got shame and when you got problems and you drink a lot, you drink on top of all of that. And it never gets resolved. And you just add to it. And I was starting to get angry at her. And I was starting to get angry at me for getting angry at her. And I was starting to resent the kid and all of that stuff. And I kept drinking, just kept drinking because that was a solution. That was my only solution. Now, I was stationed in northern Japan. You know, in northern Japan, they drive on the wrong side of the road. They do. They drive on the wrong side of the road. I'd get so drunk sometimes, I couldn't remember what side of the road I was supposed to be on. So I'd drive down the middle. That's bizarre behavior. You know, if you report your car stolen and it's the only one in the parking lot of the NCO club, they tend to take a dim view of that. <laughs> they won't let you drive it. You can't see it, you can't drive it. <laughs> see, people that don't have our disease have no sense of humor. <laughs> Society reacts to us in a very bizarre kind of way when we're driving up and down the street careening from side to side and knocking out several cars in the process. They get all worked up about it. <laughs> And they have special places for us when we do things like that, and they're usually small cubicles, and they, use, they have special clothing for us. They're usually very long sleeves and a lot of belts. And, you know, and that's where they like to put us, because we're a hazard to society. We affect other people when we're in our disease. And the Air Force got a little sick and tired of Sterling affecting them this way. So they came up and they devised a way of, of hepping me. They won't put me in group. And, you know, group's all about. You sit around, everybody sit around, group one another. You know, and, and we were just happy. Monday, my six-week group program was that I stay away from drinking for six weeks. Oh, no problem. Six weeks. Monday through Friday, I was happy. You know I was happy. I was just spreading warmth and love and sunshine everywhere I went. <laughs> but, of course, on that Friday, I'd go to that club to, uh, you know, see some of my friends, long, great, close friends, whose names I couldn't remember. You know, and I'd buy a Coke, and they'd tell some lies, and I'd buy another Coke, and I'd start telling some lies. They'd start sharing some Vietnam stories, and I'd have a rum and Coke, and I'd start sharing Vietnam stories, and I joined in 77. It was over. <laughs> and then, you know, by 3 o'clock in the morning, I couldn't find my car again. And I'd be pounding on that bar down downtown in the Ville somewhere trying to figure out what had happened. Why was I destroying my life? Why was I destroying my relationship? Why was I such a rotten dad? Why was I such a rotten employee? Why was I such a rotten person? You know, what's going on here? And I didn't know that what I was knocking back each time I asked those questions was the stuff that was killing me. Well, of course, the Air Force decided to intensify my treatment. <laughs> don't you love that, you know? I especially love in AA, we find people that don't like sponsorship, don't like being, I don't want to be controlled. But what got you here, judge? <laughs> Guess what, buddy? <laughs> You be a good, if you got one of them little cars you need signed, you'd be in control, you know? <laughs> so, you in the back of a police car with some handcuffs, you'd be in control, okay? <laughs> you know? Finance companies calling you every day, you'd be in control, you know? I mean, give it up. So the, <laughs> they decided to intensify my treatment, sent me to treatment. 30, it took them about 35 days to give me a 30-day program, you know, about right. They put every bit of information you could possibly get in one brain about alcoholism. They showed me all the movies and the pictures and the charts and the, you know, cirrhotic livers, the whole deal. You know, after 35 days, I felt so sorry for you folks. I really did. <laughs> I was willing to make a donation. Because y'all was sick. 
you know? Six months, they voted. We had a vote the day I got out of treatment, uh, day before I got out of treatment, who was most likely to drink six months after getting out of there, and it was unanimous. If I had voted, it would have been unanimous. You know, so I got sent back to this little base up in northern Japan with a mandate to stay out of trouble. You know, so I was in the fishbowl. I was in, in, in trouble. If you're new in Alcoholics Anonymous and you're wondering if all the people that, if, if you were listening to this weekend, most of these people got here under duress. You know, I did not see the light, and that's what got me in AA. I felt the heat, you know. So I walked in the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm not happy with me. The world at large is not happy with me. My wife is certainly not happy with me. And you know what I walked into? A bunch of happy people. Hi, how you doing? <laughs> you know? How you doing? Shake my head. He wants some coffee? Here, have a seat. You know, about to start the meeting. You know, I mean, all of that. Introducing me to folks. They're just so glad to see me. How dare you be glad to see me when I'm not glad to see me? I've been with me all day and it's no picnic, you know? And the last thing I want is a bunch of happy people. But I sat there and I, I went through this meeting. I'm looking around. I'm looking around. I see these things up on the wall, these, this 12 and 12, you know, the 12 tradition and 12 steps. Okay, all right, all right. Easy does it. First things first. Think, think, think. This too shall pass. These little signs all over the place. You picture these two old white guys, you know, I'm wondering who they are, you know. And there's another painting with these two other white guys talking to this white guy on the bed. And I'm like, okay, uh, hmm, you know. So I'm wondering what all this stuff is about. And they, you started with a prayer, you ended with a prayer, you passed the basket. Aha. This is a cult. Y'all going to try to jump me to Jesus. Or make me shave my head and sell books at the airport. I know that's what it's about. That's what this is about. And I played the God thing. Now, I grew up a Catholic, but I... I had decided to, to, to drift away from Catholicism very early in my life, and I was thinking I was at one time I was in, in well I was looking at, at Islam, and then I practiced an African religion called Yoruba for a little while, you know, and it was a lot of things that I was looking. I was looking for that one religion that would allow me to be a complete asshole and still get into heaven, you know. <laughs> Didn't require a whole lot of effort on my part. You know, and, and the thing was is that I was pursuing this woman. I wanted what she had and I was willing to go to any lengths to get it. And she was in this, this Baptist choir, and this Baptist choir got loaned out to this Methodist church for a couple of Sundays, so I joined the choir because I wanted what she had. And um, so at, at any given Sunday, I was hung over singing, you know, a failed Catholic who was a practicing Muslim singing in a Baptist choir in a Methodist church, you know. With that kind of experience, you know, I, I, I would get into arguments with Jehovah's Witnesses and win, you know. So I knew all there was to know about God. I knew about God. I had a Book of Mormon. I had the Quran. I had the Bible. I had the, the, you know, I had all of this stuff. And I knew all this information, you know, and it was great, but I couldn't apply it. So when you started that, we started with a prayer and you ended with a prayer and you passed the basket, it made me think of all of that. But what it didn't make me think of and what later, thanks, thank God I stayed in Alcoholics Anonymous to discover this, is that in the Freckled around the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous are people who have had what is called a spiritual experience, and they, they made a third step, and they lived their lives in accordance with the decision that they made in that third step. And I had encountered people just like that in every one of the religions that I half measured. Every one of those religions, I had encountered people like that who had made a decision to turn their will and their lives over to the care of whomever, and they lived their lives in accordance with that decision. And the fact of the matter is, most of those people made me nervous. 
So in every one of those religions I encountered, I always hung out with the half-measured people because I could relate. And I always judged them, but I could relate to them. I couldn't relate to the ones that had a glad heart and smiled at me and loved me unconditionally. See, that's the beauty about Alcoholics Anonymous. I heard it mentioned here this weekend. There's a lot of love in AA. A lot of love. And it's extremely powerful. And it'll change things. It'll just rework you, you know, and it's, it's formidable. And what I, encountered, what I encountered you for the very first time was that love. I didn't know that that's what it was, but that's what I encountered. So, you know, I stayed there for a little while because they treated me so special, you know. They were just loving me all the time. And I will tell you, if you're new in AA, uh, an AA group can be cunning, baffling, and powerful, okay? They'll make you do stuff you don't want to do. And when you start liking, it, liking doing it, they'll take it away from you and give you something else. Now, they made, me, they, they made me make coffee. Now, I make terrible coffee. I make terrible, terrible coffee. The Japanese won't even drink my coffee. And they like it strong. I mean, terrible coffee. For two weeks, I made coffee to these people. They gave me the key to the meeting. You know, I'm, I'm nuts now. Oh, I got the key to the meeting. Okay, so I've got a 20-minute commitment. I get there two hours early, you know. <laughs> I got the key, you know. Drunks could die if I don't go up to this, you know. You know, so... I'm climbing up stairs. I'm making the guy. I got the, the little, you know, terrain of 30, 40. But I, 15 people come to the meeting, 15 caps. No problem. I was making espresso is what I was making. <laughs> and for two weeks, they drank that stuff, you know. People drink eyes closing, you know. I mean, just, we got the circle. They say, wanted another volunteer for coffee maker. Three people volunteered. Thank you for your service work, Sterling. Keep coming back. You know, they made me the chairperson. I was a, a chairperson because uh, I thought I was so eloquent. No, they just need, they knew I wasn't going to come unless they gave me a hammer or something, you know, to, to keep me occupied. So, and I was at the front of the room, and it's real tacky to start the meeting and then leave. So. <laughs> it was on my sick little mind, and they would spend the rest of the time 12-stepping me. It was a small meeting, 13, 14 folks. I heard a lot of that discussed this weekend about, you know, what it was like when we got here and who were the people that, that extended themselves in a kind and loving way to us when we were unlovable, when we were unfit for human consumption, you know. And they weren't a lot of old-timers. The oldest guy there had six years, you know, but they were carrying the message, and they carried the message to me, and they carried the message to anybody that walked in that door in that little bitty base over in northern Japan. You know, and that group is still going strong. The Masao group is still a vibrant, active group in northern Japan, carrying the message to a lot of, you know, tri-service people, Army, Air Force, Navy, and everything else. They, they carry the message. And the two people that were there when I got there, they have been back to the States and then back there a couple of times, and they're still carrying the message. Bill and Kathy used to carry the message to anybody that walked in that door, particularly Kathy for me, because I would call Kathy at 3 o'clock in the morning. You know, that suicide hour, I don't know when yours is. But mine was 3 o'clock in the morning when I had thought my thoughts. When I'm going, oh, my God, you know, I'm racked in fear. I can't drink. Y'all people have screwed that up for me. Now what am I going to do? And I would be thinking about something insane, and I would call Kathy at 3 o'clock in the morning, and she would ask me that all-important question, what can we do about it right now? <laughs> well, why don't we try doing something about it in the morning, and I'll see you at the meeting that night. She never once reminded me what time it was, you know or how I was interrupting her day or her evening or her world. She was always kind and considerate to me, and I relied on that. I relied on that because I was nuts. Now, I'm going to tell you, they, they were some 
slick people. They tricked me into reading the first 164 pages of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Gave me the wrong page numbers to read. Okay? I didn't even tell them I had a book, but they figured out I had a book because one was missing. <laughs> Since they all had books and I was the newcomer, hmm. So if you've done something in AA that you think you got away with, you haven't gotten away with it, you know? So I was giving back a lot of big books before I realized they knew. <laughs> you know, they do, and they didn't say a word to me. They tricked me into reading those pages. So, you know, and a year, so I got a year sober at that little group. I, I was wonderful. I was happy. I mean, things were changing. I, I was getting a little bit of a better relationship with, with my, my wife and the job, and things were growing. I was hanging out with you folks, and you were doing stuff, so I would go and do stuff with you, and it was getting great. Getting great. And I was coming back to the States and I was rotating back to the United States and I knew that, that I was going to just get on fire for AA. They were telling me there were a lot of meetings back here and I couldn't wait. You know, I just couldn't wait. But I just knew there was one small problem with Alcoholics Anonymous. There just wasn't enough African Americans in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I had taken upon myself to dedicate my life to getting thousands of black folks in AA. There was going to be another picture up on that wall. You know what I'm saying? Bill Bob Sterling. AA, <laughs> the next generation, Jack, you know? Came back to the States, there's literally thousands of black folks now, college now, as many of them sober longer than me, pissed me off. <laughs> I, I got stationed in Florida, they have a group down there called Dedication Group. You know, I never give up a home group, if you're wondering. I'm a member in good standing of the Masao Group, I'm a member in good standing of Dedication Group in Fort Walton Beach, Florida. Remember good standing in the family, Rantoul family group in uh, Rantoul, Illinois. Remember good standing, of course, in the Foxhall group in Omaha, Nebraska. Remember good standing in the McClellan Thursday night group in Sacramento, California. I never give up a home group. They're important to me. And I'm going to tell you, if you're new and you're wondering what's, what's the difference between a regular group you attend and a home group, if you go to your home group meeting and you walk up to the resident old timer and he looks at you and he goes, oh, Jesus. <laughs> That's your home group. <laughs> You got to be there long enough to be a burden to the people that are there before you got it. <laughs> if the resident old-timer hands you his phone number and says, welcome to the meeting, young man, you, that ain't your home group because they don't know you, you know? And I walked in there, and I, I've kept home groups. And I went to a dedication group, and they made me the alternate GSR, elected me. You know, sometimes you go to the bathroom, and, you know, when you come back, you got a job. Uh, they made me the alternate GSR, and I, didn't, I knew how to spell it, <laughs> you know, but... So I would walk around, hey, I'm a man about campus now. I'm walking around, how you doing? I'm the alternate GSR. And the guy would say, well, what's that? I'd go, uh, Jim, you want to come over and tell uh, 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 the GSR? I went to one meeting. You know, I didn't know what was going on. We, I didn't know nothing about the traditions or any of that stuff. We had traditions meeting at that meeting, and it was two guys. One guy was seven years, one guy was five years. They'd argue the traditions. Everybody else just sit there and look like they were at a tennis match, you know. Just, you know, we just watched from side to side. But they were about service. They, they were actively supporting a, a treatment center that was at that base. And they were in the service. They were doing a lot of stuff to carry the message. And I got involved and caught up into that. And at two years sober, I would like to tell you that my, my sobriety was stellar, but it wasn't. I got kind of sick, and I knew I needed to do an inventory, and I knew I needed to do a fifth. And I did that inventory in one night. It takes two years and a night. And, uh, and however long it takes you to do a fourth step and a night. And, uh, and I got free of that. I went to a priest. And I just spilled it, you know, because uh, I knew he couldn't talk. I see, go to the hot place. So I figured, you know, this wasn't going to. And it must have worked because I'm still here. 
And I got free of that, and I stayed there for about a year, year and a half, and then I ended up going to Illinois for a little while, and I went to Colorado Springs, Colorado. By the time I got to Colorado Springs, Colorado, I was about four years sober, and I was nuts. You know, because the challenge in here is you got to make room for some of the stuff that we got. We got a lot of stuff up on the wall. You know, we got a lot of stuff in the book. We got a lot of stuff in the program. We got a lot of stuff in AA. You know, and it's all given to you. It's freely. Big old bag you come walking out of here with. And if you don't make any room inside of you for any of this stuff, it just sits there and collects dust. And you get sick. And I got sick at five years. And I had that other pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization at five years. Because at five years, I hated you. I hated me. I hated my job. I hated her. I hated the kid. I hated everything. But I wasn't going to drink, damn it. You know? And the fact of the matter is, I was either going to commit suicide or get a sponsor. (laughs) Equally tragic decisions as far as I was concerned. See, because, you know, I didn't want to control. I didn't want to be controlled. You know, I didn't want to be the hole in the donut, you know? So I figured I could get a sponsor now, and if it didn't work, I could kill myself later. Now, my God has a sense of humor. He decided to send me to Omaha, Nebraska. Now, Omaha, Nebraska does not sound like AA Mecca. You know, I mean, I knew where, it, I, I had known enough about the history by now to figure, you know, it was New York or maybe Ohio, you know, big place. Omaha? Come on. I get stationed in Omaha, Nebraska, and down in the basement of St. Mary's Church in Bellevue, Nebraska, I heard about this meeting on Tuesday night, so I go down these stairs, and I encountered um, Bellevue, Nebraska's little suburb just south of, uh, of Omaha, and that's where the Foxhole Group met for many, many years until we had to move, we started to swell, we had to move to another location, but Bellevue is also the annex to the State Mental Institution in New York, uh, it's another name for it. And I found the annex to that state mental institution right there and at the bottom of that church, St. Mary's Church. Because when I walked in there, they were all whooping and hollering and grabbing and just w- having a wonderful time. Hi, how you doing? Hey, ooh, ooh, ooh. hey you want a cup of coffee? Hey, how you doing? How you, doing? you know? And they were just happy to see me. And you know, it pissed me off just like it did that first time. Because I just didn't understand what was going on here. You had newcomers reading and stuff, you know? That's blasphemy. You can't have a newcomer stand up there reading the steps wrong with you. They weren't doing it right as far as I was concerned. But I, was, I walked around that meeting for a couple of weeks and I met a man who walked up to me and he handed me a meeting schedule and he circled in the meeting schedule a couple of places where he went to meetings. And he said, if you want to hide in AA, that's fine. But these are the meetings I attend. And he handed me that meeting schedule. Nah, that pissed me off. That pissed me off. I was mad at him that day, the next day, and the day after. And let me clue you in. If you're mad at somebody that long, three straight days, and they're the same sex as you and you don't have a sponsor, get them for a sponsor. Because if they're going to spend that much time up in your head, at least they could do some cleaning while they're up there. <laughs> I tell you, I asked Reggie to be, a, be, a, be my sponsor. Now, I was told, I was told for many, many years in AA, sitting in those discussion meetings, you know, I, I was told that a lot of times that the person who's being sponsored is giving more help to the person sponsoring, you know, that there was a benefit here. So I was figured, Reggie, be pleased, you know, that I was giving him an opportunity to grow spiritually. (laughs) You know, he made me say please. So on the afternoon of Village Inn, uh, right there in Bellevue, Nebraska, I, I asked him and said, please, would you sponsor me? And he immediately started asking me to do certain things. And one of those things was to go to my meeting dressed somewhat like this. Now, I had worn ties to brothels overseas, okay? I had worn ties when it would be better than, but now all of a sudden I had to wear a tie every Tuesday night and I was pissed off. 
Now, I would sit there and my, you know, my first wife can attest to it. I'd be tying that tie to these AA Nazis. I'm firing everybody. You think they are, you wear a tie to the meeting. What the hell is this? I'd get in that car and I'd be driving over to the, to the play. I'd pull into the parking lot. I'm firing him. I'm firing everybody. I'm giving, I'm go to the other meetings where they all sit around being pissed off. That's real AA. You know? And I'd get down them stairs and I'd shake about six or seven, eight, nine, ten, four hundred hands. And by the time, how it works got read. I loved you. I loved you. And that's what happened. For years and years upon years, I learned your names. I learned some things about you. I started to get happy when a guy would get up to the podium to share for three minutes and he would say, I got a job. I'd be happy for him. Now, I don't care about nobody. I don't like most folks. But somehow or another, it happened. I started to care and be interested in who and what you were. Because I started listening to what you had to say, and it had a lot to do with me. And that fellowship grew up around me. It was already there. I just got in the middle of it, and it started to enfold me. It absorbed me. It was great. It was great, and I was having a wonderful time. And then at nine years old, I decided to climb the stairs of my two-bedroom, four-bedroom four house that was on the base. You know, I'm a success in my career. Now I'm sober nine and a half years. I'm just wonderful. Thank you very, very much. And I climbed those stairs and I said, Hun, Hun, do you want to stay married to a guy like me? And she said, Nope. <laughs> Never ask that kind of question unless you're prepared for the answer. <laughs> I was decimated. She decided she wanted to leave because she wasn't getting a lot of this. See? Because for an hour to an hour and a half, I was looking pretty good. I was bringing some of it home. Reggie helped me a lot with that. You know that there's a spiritual principle of keeping your mouth shut? I thought it was my job to make sure that she had a good spiritual program. I can't sponsor her, you know, but, and he told me I couldn't, and I had to keep my mouth shut, and I had to leave her alone, but it wasn't enough. She didn't want to be married to me, and she didn't want my version of what I thought was a, a wonderful life together, and she took my kid, and she escaped, you know, captivity, and she went back to Washington, D.C., Now I was mortified. I was destroyed. How, oh, my God, I'm a failure. I'm a failure as a man. I'm a failure as a husband. You know, I'm walking around AA in tatters, you know, and you know how we are when we're walking around in AA in pain, and you got a fellowship of people who care about you. They ask you that all-important question, how you doing, Sterling? Fine. <laughs> fine. I'm fine. You know, and my sponsor being the loving, kind, wonderful man that he is, put his arms around me and said, uh, you know, we're really blessed to have the only man that ever got a divorce in Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> Mean folks, <laughs> you know, they don't care about my feelings, but they care about my actions. He started to help me get through that. And how he helped me get through it, I had to do the work. I had to make the inventories. I had to accept the fact that there were some parts of that I owned. And I was going to have to resolve to make some changes because I had to make some room for the spiritual awakening. If I was going to have a good relationship with you all and with, with my, my employer and my employees and with the world at large, the fellowship that I was born into, if I was going to have a good relationship with that, I was going to have to do some work and make some room. And I wasn't willing to give up some of the stuff that made me bizarre. Well, I had to. I had to give it up. And, and my God has a sense of humor. He gave me weird guys to sponsor so that I had to learn how to teach them to give it up so that I'd have to do it. And it's, a, it's true, you know, you get sponsored enough guys and you keep having them do stuff. If it's working for them, then you can do it. Hey, you know, <laughs> must work, you know. 
And that's what happened. I started to grow, and my, my, my higher power provided me with another relationship where I got, I got an opportunity to be honest with her and develop that relationship in a principled way. And I was sober. And we started to, to become deeper and more meaningful in how we shared with one another. And I was falling in love with alcoholics and novels. And I also got a job where I got a little famous. I got a chance to be a, a weather forecaster on television for a little bit. So I was being cool. Hi, how you doing? Partly cloudy kind of thing. Hey. <laughs> you know, my life was on, I was on easy street. It was coming together. Everything was wonderful. The Air Force sends me out to California. Boom. California? What? What's going on with that? They said, just go west, young man, you know, and, and they paid the checks, so I went. And I realized the reason why they needed somebody like me out there, obviously, because, you know, I'm thinking, I'm thinking, I'm an alcoholic, I start thinking. They need somebody like me because there must be thousands of drugs dying out there in California. So I'm going to get in my four-banger Nissan stanza, and you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to climb over them Rocky Mountains, I'm going to come out of Reno, and I'm going to get into Sacramento and save everybody. Well, that four-banger Nissan stanza broke down in Cheyenne, Wyoming. Transmission fell out of that sucker. I found three things in Cheyenne, Wyoming. La Quinta Inn, Amco Station. And right down there at the end, all the way down on Main Street, on the main drag in Cheyenne, Wyoming, next to Burger King, is Little Quonset Hut, and the Alamo Club. And when I got in there, I saw the picture of them two old white guys. And uh, 12 and 12, think, 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 first things first. Guy named Jim, always a guy named Jim. <laughs> always a guy named Jim. Old beat-up desk, always an old beat-up desk. We can put AA in a crystal cathedral. There'll be a beat-up desk there. You know, the window shades, you know, 12 and 12. I, no windows in some places we have meetings. We got window shade 12 and 12. I love it. I love it. I love it. You know, and for a couple of days, I stayed with my family there, and I went to Sacramento during one of the worst rainy seasons without a car, and I'm a weatherman. Ha, 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 ha. You know? Now, I had two numbers of some real old-timers that were out there in Sacramento was moving and shaking. You would have thought I would have called them. But I was 10, 11 years sober, and I got scared. See, because when you get scared, it stops. Everything, whatever's going on, stops when you get scared. Because you get scared, you get scared. You got to stop doing it. And what you taught me how to do was even when you're scared, keep doing it. And I forgot. And I got weird. And I got desperate. And once again, the Fellowship at Large of Alcoholics Anonymous will pull me out of me when I get desperate or weird or I roll right back into this illness. This guy called me up and said, Sterling, I just want to say goodbye to you before I kill myself. I said, what? He says, yeah, I just wanted to let you know that I'm going to kill myself, and I just wanted to say goodbye. I said, well, hang up. He goes, what do you mean, hang up? I said, I want to call the police. If you're on the line and you kill yourself, I can't get through to the police. So, you know, it turned out to be a, a wash, but he, he wanted some help, and that was the way he figured he could get me to help him. And I went over there, and we drove around, and we did some things, and he, needless to say, he didn't commit suicide, but I got back in the middle of Alcoholics Anonymous. It was out of desperation. I needed you. I need you a hell of a lot more than you need me. I'm with me all day. I know how not wrapped too tight I am. But if I hang out with you, I can be better. And I'm at my best when I'm hanging out with you and helping you. So I learned how to do some stuff. I learned how to do service jobs out there that I had never done before. You know, I, I wasn't very much in the inner group. But the person walked up to me and said, uh, how would you like to be involved in intergroup? And my mind was saying no, and my mouth was saying sure. And I got involved in intergroup, and I got really involved in intergroup and central office and all of that stuff. And there were a lot of people who were putting the personality, in my opinion, ahead of the principal. And I had to climb into that 12 and 12 every day and learn how to be a principled example because I didn't sponsor them. And it was none of my business how they behaved, but it was my business or how I behaved. 
and I had to learn how to be a grown-up in AA. Isn't that tough when you got to be a grown-up in AA? It's the one place where they will allow you to be completely childish, and then you got now you got to start being a grown-up. And the fact of the matter is, I started to grow up, and God gave me an opportunity to, to be a better person and to learn how to work with other folks, and it, it benefited my relationship with other people. Funny how that happened. And the thing is, I thought, I'm on easy street. I got four more years before I get out of the Air Force, and I'm going back to Omaha, Nebraska, and I'm going to live a good life. Well, they want to send me to Korea first. I didn't want to go to Korea, but the Air Force didn't understand that. They are just going to send me to Korea. So I married her, going to go to Korea. They canceled the assignment. They go, go back to California. I said, I want to go back to California. They said, you understand. <laughs> you go back to California. I went back to California, and I was angry because I had been disappointed. I was toxic. You know, you know how it is when you're toxic, you're really sick, you're pissed off, you want to help somebody. You know, practical experiences that suggested, you know, intensive work. Or not. So I want to, I want to help somebody. So I'm going to go to a meeting and help somebody. Come here, let me help you. We're going to work the steps now, all 12 of them, right now. Get in the car, you know. My sponsor, being sensible that he is, knew that it would not be a good idea. He sent me to a movie instead. And I went through that. I had to read get a new apartment, had to get a new car, I had to find a place to live, all this stuff. And I was sponsoring some weird, weird, weird guys, but these weird, weird guys that I was sponsoring out there in California had problems other than alcohol that I really had to sit down and not just do the beatitudes and the platitudes. I had to sit down and work through the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous with them. We had to go through the book. We had to read. We had to learn. We had to grow together. I got to watch the miracle. You see, that's the thing. Up until now, it had been a, a, a beautiful exercise, but now I had to start watching the miracle take place in you. I had to watch the light come on in your eyes because that's where the miracle is for me today in watching you grow. I don't know where I am in my sobriety and my recovery, but I can kind of tell where you are because when I look in your eyes, I'm looking for the glow. I'm looking for the awakening. I'm looking for the miracle. I'm looking for the pain. I'm looking for all of that stuff. Because if I'm standing here in front of you, I ain't out there thinking about me. And I was working with those guys. And I worked with those guys as intensely as I possibly could. I came back to, the state, back to Omaha, Nebraska, having retired from the Air Force. I've got guys' relationships with people out on the West Coast. I've got relationships with people in Omaha. I've got a relationship with this brand-new wife and a 17-year-old son and a relationship with a daughter. I've got relationships with all these folks, and I've got responsibilities, and I'm doing it. I'm hanging in there, because I got the traditions on one side, and I got the steps, and I'm working it, and everything is coming together, and I realize I gotta go get a job. <laughs> so I get this job, and at this job, just a couple of days, into, a few months into that job, I slip and break my ankle in three places, and I'm down for three months with a 17-year-old son who likes rap music. <laughs> Needless to say, all of my serenity went, Pfft. But people in the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous would send me letters. You know, it's kind of funny. When we go through bad times in AA, you know, there's always examples. There's worse examples. I mean, I've got things going on in my life, medical situations. I've got a, a job status situation. I've got things going on in my life. Because life don't stop being life just because you got the little AA gold star for 24 straight hours. The fact of the matter is life is life. And I've watched other people this weekend, with more stuff going on than me, stand up here or do that thing or make the coffee or show up for their commitment, and they've been inspiring, and I've been humbled. Because I usually get humble when I'm watching the power of God working in you. 
I usually get humble when I watch a miracle take place right in front of me. That's a humbling experience. And I've been fortunate that I've been here to see that thing take place. Because I'm reminded that whatever's going on in my life ain't that big a deal. I'm inspired by that. I went through the tough times and trying to recover from that job. I had to switch jobs. I had to do a lot of different things. But I, I stayed in the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I, I tried as best I could to be teachable, to be ready for whatever was coming my way. And I'm going to tell you, there's a, there's, a real benefit, there's a real secret to this. If you're out there, and you're listening to me talk on and on and on about my recovery, and you do this, when I'm talking, then you be one of me. Because only one of me does this when one of me is talking. It's just, it's just that way it is. Now, Al and Ozzy do this. <laughs> they do this all the time. Every once in a while they do this. You know, the, I, the, the best thing I think about the program, both the programs, Al and and AA, is you know, we've got a book in the, in the AA called As Bill Sees It, and then the program in Al-Anon is one called Lois Remembers. <laughs> Never forget, she was the only one with a paycheck during that time. So I am grateful to the program of Al-Anon because my wife and I are trying to put together what, what was talked about today. The kind of home that Sue and Keith were, were talking about. The kind of life that, that was mentioned last night that, that, that Tom talked about this morning. You know, where the thing is, a family starts to recover. Because the family is the first fellowship that I've ever encountered. And I know that when I hang out with you, I see the miracle that is you. And I can just bring a little bit of that maybe back into my home. Then they get to experience that miracle. They get to experience the love and, and the, the challenge of being in a safe, well-lighted place. And I can do that. I'm capable of doing that because I've worked with people and I've been through the steps and I've experienced it with you all in a safe, well-lighted place. I can do that. I have that capacity. And the fact, and it, it happens. It happens. I, I broke my leg, broke my ankle. I went back to the job. You know, that one year, I, I lost the job. I lost the pigeon. And I turned 42 all at the same time. You know, oh, it was a tough week. But two weeks later, I got a chance to sit in an auditorium in Washington, D.C. and watch my daughter graduate from Duke Ellington School in D.C., valedictorian. I watched Mayor Marion Berry put the National Merit Scholarship banner around her neck. Senator Eleanor Holmes Norton gave the commencement address. And my little girl came, got up and stood up in front of all these folks and gave her a valedictorian speech. And she thanked her dad for his kindness and his encouragement. Now, I ain't kind, and I sure as hell ain't encouraging. But what the miracle is, is the miracle that you, I brought home on occasion. And rather than just be a checkbook dad, I talked to this girl over the years. It wasn't last year that I got a chance to go to Hagerstown, Maryland, and give a talk. And it was the weekend of Father's Day. And my daughter just happened to be home. And she came out to Hagerstown, Maryland. And she sat down there. And she sat among you all. And I gave a talk on Sunday. And that was the very first time my daughter ever got to hear my story. And we spent Father's Day that Sunday together. And she's in love with her dad. And I'm in love with my little girl. And it's not because I'm a wonderful guy. Is because the miracle that is you has taught me how to be a principled person even when I'm scared, even when I'm all by myself, even when I don't think it's going to work. 
I can do some stuff. I can just try it. Just for a little while, five minutes at a time, I can try it. And the benefit is I get to stand in front of other people and watch them miraculously change before my eyes. I have a wonderful, warm, and satisfying relationship with my wife. I love her desperately. And she's not too, she's not too pissed off with me. I mean, she let me come out here and see y'all. But she knew I was going to be surrounded by the Al-Anons, too. So. And she would get a report, I know that. But I have a great relationship with the people that I work with. I mean, I'm respected. Most of the time, I look normal to those folks. That's amazing. And I have a, a fledgling relationship with that son that's still living with me. He's trying to find himself. I hope he does soon. I really do. But he's angry. And he's angry about stuff that I don't have any knowledge about. And I just have to learn how to be a consistent, caring, loving member. To extend my hand and to smile warmly the same way you have done with me time and time again, regardless of my circumstances, regardless of whether or not I was being accepted or was acceptable. The fact of the matter is, you've been consistent in those actions, and you've taught me how to take those actions on a consistent basis, and my life has steadily improved as a result of that. So I have some challenges. I still have to make the home that I live in an AA home. I still have to make the, 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 all of my affairs a part of this thing. But I can tell you that I stand before you as a product of all of your love, kindness, consideration, and consistency. That I don't own any of this. And I don't care if I've got to give it at 3 o'clock in the morning or in some other state, in Ohio or wherever. Because I owe big time. I owe you so, so much. Because you've given me the friendliness. You've given me the fellowship. And you've certainly given me the understanding. You've wrapped me in a place where I can grow and be what I need to be. All I have to do is participate, and I'm, I'm so, so very grateful for that. I'll close with a little story that defines, I think, what I am about and what AA has done for me. guy was trying to paint his house. He had a little kid, two-year-old helping him. Two-year-olds don't help. They no help whatsoever, you know. And he was trying to get this thing done, so he took a, a, a map, a map of all the continents, the oceans, everything. He tore it up into pieces. And he says, honey, go in the next room and put this puzzle together. So she scampers off. And in about five minutes, she comes right back in. Done. He's amazed. He's like, what? wait a minute. I didn't know where some of that stuff went. How could you do that so quickly? She said, well, there was a man on the other side. I put the man together. The world came together. <laughs> See, that's exactly what Alcoholics Anonymous has done for me. I had a lot of problems with the world. I had a lot of problems with me in the world. And what you did was you put all those things aside. You gave me some tools. You gave me a God that I'd come to learn, know and love. You gave me a program, principles that I could work no matter how afraid or how upset or how lonely, angry, or indignant I might have been. You gave me all of that. You gave me your love, your fellowship, your kindness, your understanding. And with all, armed with all of those tools, I was able to go out here and make a world for myself. And I know that if you're new in Alcoholics Anonymous, you may believe that that's all beatitudes and platitudes. But if you stick around and you watch, I'm sure you're going to be convinced. I'm grateful to be here and sober. Thank you.